0: Hello and welcome to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings and add me on Snapchat on at hstebbings with two b's and all ads get a personal message from me. It'd be great to see you there. Likewise, you can follow Jason Lemkin, the man behind the Sasta magic on at Jason LK on Twitter. But time for the show today and I'm thrilled to welcome Todd Olson. Now, Todd is the founder and CEO at Pendo.io, the startup that allows you to capture all user behavior, gather feedback and then provide contextual support. And they've raised over 30 million in VC funding from some of the very best in the business including Near Azure Battery, uh, Megan at Spark, Matt at Salesforce, just to name a few. As for Todd, prior to Pendo, he held various different roles in product, as well as co-founding two prior startups, and I want to say a special thank you to Near Azure Battery and Matt at Salesforce for recommending Todd today, and a big hand to Jason Lemkin for the introduction, without which the show would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform, and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews. To Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360 degree view of their reputation across the web, with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts, and even has a 15-day trial for all sasta listeners simply head over to reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial but enough from me so i'm delighted to hand over to todd olson founder and ceo at pendo.io good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up todd it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today a huge thanks to near azure battery for the intro today but thank you so much for joining me today todd Thank you, Harry. I'd love to get started, though, today, by asking a bit about you, how you made your way into SaaS and then came to found Pendo.
1: I've been in SaaS for a while, actually. So the company I founded prior to Pendo was uh, my first SaaS business. ended up selling that company to a company called Rally Software, which was a really exciting growth company. I joined there as its VP of product, and uh, we ended up taking it public uh, as a SaaS business. So being on that rocket ship of growth and you know, ultimately culminating an IPO is a, a fun way to learn about SaaS. But after that, that kind of inspired uh, Pendo. You know, I as a head a product or a SaaS product, I find it incredibly frustrating to not know what my customers were doing inside my product. I I constantly wanted to find out, are the decisions that my organization is making in terms of what features we're delivering and how we're steering the product, are they actually helping? Are they delivering value? Are customers using them? You know, because ultimately, if we're making bad decisions, it's going to hurt the company in the long term. And, And it's funny because at the time, all the data we had was guarded by one person in the company who is like not the nicest person to go talk to and every time i'd go ask for things
0: you know he would say oh it takes like a month or two months and got super super frustrating and but you from a product yeah. perspective you can't make quick kind of a b testing decisions based on those timelines i guess
1: yeah absolutely not you know and, and i mean obviously we're not. a quick competitive aggressive market and you want to know the thing i shipped last week is it getting used right because if it's not getting used we should go do something about it really really fast so that was super frustrating and then so yeah i mean we, we started the company to essentially address that pain and make it really really easy for people to always know what's happening inside their products and then not just give them the data give them some tools to actually drive a better experience i mean i think we, we all the companies and the, you know, the really successful SaaS businesses have great products and it's is absolutely critical, and you know I think our vision is helping everyone create a, a great product experience. And yeah, I'm
0: certainly you know, excited. It's a huge challenge, but you know that, that definitely is very motivating. Can I ask what were the big lessons you took from going in that hyper growth mode with Rally and seeing that firsthand as one of the kind of key execs? You know, I think tons of things. What one? I think
1: lots of change happens, and I think a lot of it comes down to people and scaling, right? So you, and we're seeing this now at Pendo, and I'm sure there's a lot of conversations. But hiring ahead of growth, you end up finding yourself when you're growing quickly in positions where you have people in the wrong seats in the bus really quickly. And what you don't want to do is be like stuck, when you're completely underwater. Your organization feels horrible, and then you've got all these people in the wrong seats in the bus. So like getting the right people, hiring a little bit of head of where you are, like. Like, hire someone a little more senior than what you think earlier, always going to pay off huge and prep you for that, that next phase. And that's something we've just taken to heart here. And we try to get ahead of that
0: stuff because it sucks to be behind. Can I ask, what are the signs that someone's in the wrong seat? Is it glaringly obvious they're just incompetent? Or are there kind of signs in terms of missed quotas continuously? How many missed quotas, product decisions? What is it that's a sign that someone's misplaced?
1: Yeah, no, I think if, it's, if you feel like they're horribly incompetent, like you screwed up way before that, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, it's not that. I, I find when I'm having to start to spend more time with someone and... They, they just don't know what they should be doing next. They're unclear. And and, and sometimes you, you'll you hear it like I'm underwater, like people that are constantly underwater and can't find a way to get above that and start being more strategic and helping steer their organization. That's usually a pretty good sign that something's going on, you know, and, and if I'm having to step in and get more involved in an area of the business, then that's also a good sign that I should be spending, you know, thinking about is that person in the right role. And sometimes you just need to bring in someone on top of them. And many Case it's about getting someone a better boss. Like as a CEO, I'm a pretty crappy boss. Like I am not going to hold your hand. I'm literally going to expect you to be awesome. And if you're not awesome, well, we're going to fix that, right? So um, some cases you need to find someone that's going to mentor someone better. They may be in over their head, but they don't even know it yet, right? So you know, my job is to help find those situations early and
0: get them help because ultimately a lot of these people are great people. We want to keep them. They just they just need more help. When do you think there's the transition from those that act as the jack of all trades kind of? Uh, mercenary doing lots of things to where there's the structure and there's the boss who's mentoring the one below at what stage of the company did you see that with rally and then with pendo
1: yeah i mean i think you know certainly at rally by the time i had even gotten there like that was post series c that, that definitely you, you don't have as many jack of all trades but uh, you'll still have a few but as you get closer and closer to the ipo you get fewer and fewer obviously but you know at, at pendo now like post series b a lot of change there i mean you know it, it depends on the department you know i, I think you know if you, if you take software, SaaS businesses, software companies, we focus most on the the building and then the selling. Everything else is supporting building and selling. So I think our jack-of-all-trades, they, they first start getting out of our building departments and our selling departments, and then they start moving into more the operational or, or, or non-building uh, or selling departments, and I think. But then over time, of course, you start going public, you, you can't have you need specialists in those departments, right? And, you know, in the operations areas as well. So I think I, I think it just, it, those those jack-of-all-trades just move around the company and until eventually someone you're going to have to specialize at some point
0: i do want to remain on the kind of product centricity we discussed earlier there though and start kind of by integrating that with the rise of customer success a personal passion point of mine but in previous conversations you've said to me that you're seeing key tension in business shifting from marketing sales to success product i'm really intrigued What do you mean by this? Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, years past, it'd be like the VP of sales would come in and like, we don't have enough leads. And the VP market, no, we got great leads. Your sales reps can't convert them. So it's like massive tension and lots of finger pointing. And I think, you know, marketing automation, you know, the Marketos of the world, folks like that really set off to address that. Like, let's create shared understanding and let's, you know, make sure we drive better collaboration, better data sharing, things like that, right? So tons of tons of like finger pointing and tension. I feel like a lot of tension feels like it's moved to the back part of the house in terms of customer success and product. And look, I mean, customer success people are on the front lines, right? So they are, and what's interesting now, we all know how important it is because in SaaS and recurring revenue business, the retention is such a massive lever, right? So now you, you want a department solely focused on, on that lever. So, you know, those tensions where, you know, they're onboarding things and they're like, they're literally all the shit that's bad in the product, these guys have to ingest. So when they get to the product team, like they just unload and they have all sorts of frustration. But it's tough because as a product guy, you know, you get the CS team coming to you because they, they, they all, almost always have like 10 number one priorities. So, you know, it's like, how do you have like, like what's your first priority? Well, like, they're all the top priority. What, that's really, really hard to, to work with. And then sometimes the customer success team will come and they're like, oh, this is super critical this month. The next month, like it's not even the top 10 list of the things that they think are most important. Right. And that's like super, super frustrating. So as a, the product guy, like we live and die by really hard trade offs, And the success team is just like unloading on us and they expect you to actually react to it and it's
0: very difficult to react to it. So how do you mitigate that then as, as, as the big boss? How do you kind of resolve this tension that's inherent between the two departments now of success and product?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it's about understanding and empathy. I mean, at the end of the day, most customer success people like literally have no idea what product does. They don't know how they prioritize and how the work's done. So a lot of it's just education, like this this is what's useful. You know, I, I was sitting in a room and I, I was talking to a, a, a group And I said, look, you know, you're allowed to give us one thing that you want. (laughs) And if that one thing doesn't change two months in a row, there's a really good chance we'll start working on it. Because that means it's consistent, it's real, it's important. It looks at all of the customers and kind of helps prioritize. That's something that's actionable. But, you know, I think it's like relationship counseling. I I don't know if you've, you know, I think you're married or been to a marriage counselor. But anyway, if you ever find yourself in a relationship and you need counseling, you know, you could end up in these places where it's like just helping each side understand what the other side's dealing with, right? And I think a lot of it's there, like this shared empathy, better collaboration. I think that's the secret. And, you know, so in some ways as CEO, you're kind of a marriage counselor, a relationship counselor, and that's okay.
0: I mean, if you can just get everyone on the same page, I think, you know, it helps people move forward. So I'm intrigued. What's the key KPI you use to measure customer success at Pendo? I mean, obviously,
1: like most companies, we're looking at net retention. Retention is a really, really important number. I mean, you know, it's essentially, I think, when I talk to our customers, I see. They, they, you know, they have a bucket of water, which is all of our flywheel. It's our cash, right? And their job is to make sure it doesn't leak. And their job is also to make sure that they help surface areas where that water can just organically expand without having sales add more water to the bucket, right? So, they, they are our retention area of the
0: business. So, that, that to me is the ultimate measure that we, we measure them on. So, when I hand you your retention numbers, what's a good retention number for you? What's an amazing one? And what's a bad one?
1: Yeah. So, we're fortunate we have very good retention. So, um, I mean, I think net retentions in the 130 and above percent are are excellent. I mean, obviously, one hundred and ten is good. Anything above hundred is, is okay. I mean, anything less than
0: hundred is really bad. Mm-hmm. So that I means your bucket's leaking. We don't like that. Absolutely. So. I mean, obviously, one determinant of uh, customer success in terms of just kind of usability of product and customer satisfaction is MPS. Uh, yeah. So I'm intrigued to discuss this with you. And how important a role does MPS play for you? I think it's hugely important to me. To me, it's a early
1: indicator or a leading indicator of retention, right? And it's not perfect. No numbers are perfect, but it gives me a good sense uh, going into well any month or or in general uh, going into a renewal period of, of what the the overall happiness is. So for me, uh, I think it's critically important. We actually share at the board level. We share at the board level for years now, and, and also we have NPS as part of our product. So we actually help other companies measure their NPS and and try to do something and take action upon it. And I think I have just come to see what other companies are doing with it, and I, I think it's really Really interesting and really
0: important. So. Are, there an, are there any innovative takes you've seen on NPS to really kind of harness the power of it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think where people talking like a data scientist, like even our data scientists, she'll say like, we will tell you all the technical problems with it. And even now, like a bunch of us have, have taken NPS, and we can, you know, we're kinda, kind of kind of conditioned. I mean, I know if I, I put a, a nine or a ten, they're going to consider me a promoter. And if I do less than that, they're going to be neutral, right? I know I, I know that threshold six. If I want to be a detractor, right? So I, I'm smart, right? Around it, I know I'm educated on the metrics, so I'm, and it does inform my, my goals. So I think some people will say that, that biases the number a little bit, but I think you need to take you need to combine it with other metrics. We look at a variety of usage metrics in concert with it. So you know, for example, if someone gives me an MPS of ten, but they've been in my product once in the last thirty days, well, that's not so actionable. They're just being nice to me,
0: you know. So you uh, so you so combine kind of uh, daily active or uh, you know, active usage, how long they're on the platform for, and then combined with AMPS,
1: exactly, exactly. I think I think we're seeing really good results for that. But then also having an action plan, like so. You know, if we get someone, you know, within certain thresholds, we immediately fire off messages trying to connect with them and go deeper on certain areas. So we've got playbooks in- embedded in our culture that that immediately start getting more qualitative feedback behind the number. And I think that's been hugely important. And honestly, just showing customers that we care. And we're listening to numbering mean, so many people like you take a survey and they don't follow up with you when you just give them feedback uh you know i submitted a support request about something i bought recently and i got no feedback i mean that just pisses me off like you know it's like it's like i took time out of my day and you know you don't even have the the, the decency to get back I mean, it's like you know it's like fuck you i'm not going to use your product anymore that just pisses me off so so yeah i mean that, that happens and so following up i i think i think is such a critically important thing and, and i know we do this part of our process and then the other thing We've done is we've combined our NPS into Slack, so we've got a Slack channel where we can just like it's like live voice to the customer. Things come in, we can comment on it. It's You know, we can uh, we can celebrate the successes. We can comment on the the, the areas that we need improvement and like kind of divvy them out. So I mean, to me, it's like you know, it's not my of course my my iPhone. So like eating them on bar and you know NPS scores are coming. It's like it fires me up. You know, it's like I, I love that. It's, it's me being connected to my customer around the clock and I think
0: I, I couldn't live without it. Obviously NPS being a, a crucial data point there but expanding that a little wider I'd love to hear your approach to the role of data and analytics in, in product management itself. Yeah absolutely and, and yeah, there's a balance here you know I, I think
1: you know, no question that building products there's there's a design aspect innovation and, and of course it's a creative process so it's not like you know it, you just like put a bunch of numbers into a spreadsheet and now pops a roadmap and a vision and a strategy right I mean But the same token, just because you're being creative and artistic, you know, doesn't preclude you from using data to actually check in and see, okay, did this thing that I built, did it actually deliver value? Are people actually using it? You know, it it is insane the number of times I sit down with product people today when there are plenty of tools to help you get some insights into your decision making that they just don't care. You know, you're talking to a guy and he's like, yeah, you know, I talk to customers. I know what's going on. I think everyone thinks they're like little mini Steve jobs is you know it's like they're, they're somehow blessed with some amazing skill to create perfect products and you know they, they sure they could get some data but you know what yeah, is that really going to improve their decision making you know, I'm, I'm an expert here and it, it drives me crazy and, and then you know it, but it is funny increasingly six months later i'm talking to that person back at the same company talking to a different person I, I think more and more companies are getting less and less satisfied with that level of hey just trust me i'm a great product person and let me run with this. I think, you know, understanding what people are doing, I think understanding and and measuring the quality of your decision-making, I think it's disciplined, I think it's smart. I mean, hell, every other area of the business is doing it. (laughs) Why why
0: just probably get some free pass, right? I've got got big questions on that product decision-making there. Firstly, how long is long enough after observing the metrics and the data to actually think about and then implement product decisions first? How long is like a, a good period that provides the traction that you need to come forward with an argument for a product change? Yeah, you know, I think it depends. You know, I mean obviously that's of course the, the the cheap answer, right? But
1: I like to think of it a little bit differently. What if I release something right now that I know isn't good enough on purpose, that I have not released things that I believe that we need. Let's see how many people use it. And if no one uses the first week, let's add a few more. And then let's say five percent of people use it and a little bit more. And what's neat about it, like an approach like that, is you know, maybe I get to the point where everyone's using using something, but I haven't built everything I thought I needed, now I just saved a whole bunch of time and, and a whole bunch of waste building something that probably no one really used. So if you're doing it more iterative and more incremental, you can check every week and see if people are doing it. And it depends on your product. I mean, we work with some products, like, you know, so that, that, that's where it depends. I mean, some products are day in, day out products. Like we, we work with products in the real estate realm where real estate offices use it every single day of their lives. So you'll get really good data really, really fast. Now using a, a cyclical product, like something to value your tax, or something like that. I mean, obviously, you have windows in which people will give you better data, but you can get data within a week. I, I think in some products it may take a month, but I think anything more than a month, you're probably making excuses
0: for your ability to collect good data. It's like, uh, yeah, you know, you know. So that's kind of how I look at it. So now we've got the data collection. If we move to, I'm used to investment decision making. If we move to product decision making, what's the optimal structure? Is there a kind of streamlined decision making process like investing, whereby kind of the best uh, product updates go through very quickly. How would you look to structure a product decision making process, ideally?
1: It doesn't need to be super formal, but getting a sense of what the overall business value of delivering something is, weighed by the overall cost of doing it, generally drives better decision making, right? So, you know, in, in business value, there's a lot of proxies for that. I mean, I, the ultimate proxy, of course, is always going to be revenue. Uh, everything could eventually tie to dollars. But what I found is that some people try to be too precise and and they make excuses for doing nothing whatsoever. But if you at least take some, you have some discipline around, okay, what's the ultimate guess around revenue impact to this particular feature that we're building, weighing that against other features, and then looking at that by the cost, because we're all searching for low-hanging fruits, things where you can have very small things to build that deliver massive amounts of value to the business. Mm-hmm. Um, those are good things to build,
0: right? Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of the framework that I been using and it works really really well and we're gonna move into something called Todd's 60 Second Saster. we don't do it for anyone else it's just for you I promise you <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, flattery gets you everywhere um and uh, so it's 60 seconds per statement how does that sound sounds perfect so starting a company but in later life with four kids yep how's that you know, it is tough. I
1: mean, I never quite feel like I have the balance I'm striving for. I'm always sacrificing something, right? So I just accepted the fact that I'm going to be perpetually imbalanced. But it also means I'm way more intense at focus at work. I mean, I don't have time for hour-long ping-pong matches. Um, so you'll find that I have a lot less tolerance and time for bullshit. Mm-hmm. So we are direct. We're intense. We're focused. We get shit done. I mean, I still wear hoodies to work and shorts and all that stuff. But, yeah, no more bullshit. Creating a startup culture for adults. At first, you got People like adults. That means not a lot of process rules, micromanaging, uh, lots of transparency. So many companies like don't tell people things that are really, really important. So they're unempowered to do their job well. So we treat people like adults. I mean, everyone has most the same information that I have. Pretty much all the same information I have. But we expect them to behave like adults. Like, don't do stupid shit. If I again, I have four kids. Like, I don't need to be. I don't need like hundred kids at work. So like, do your job. Don't do stupid things. It's all good.
0: What's been the hardest element of scaling the business so far? Yeah, I think just finding the
1: right people and being patient. I think so many people, well, there's always more work to do than people you have, and it's easy to sacrifice and settle for someone who's bad. That's, that's just super
0: hard. Favorite SAS reading material? What's yours?
1: I like that Mattermark newsletter because it's a good summary of, of everything in the week. I mean, and, and, and I think of it, a specific
0: blog, I'm a big fan of Tomas Tongu's. Mm. So no, I'm with you on both. I absolutely love Mattermark and Tom. And then let's finish a quick fire round on. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Pendo? I think I knew this, but it's been validated
1: so much more. But the importance of really high-quality investors, I cannot emphasize that enough to to, to entrepreneurs out there. It's like there is a huge difference, and money is not the same. You know, you're just doing people who say, well, money's money. It's like, no, it really isn't. It is
0: really, really, really important to get someone high-quality. So, um, that's been hugely valid. Okay, we're now out of the quickfire because you're into my territory of investing. So, talk. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck the fire. We're now into migrants. Uh, Investing. What makes the best VCs to you? What what makes those high quality, high quality? And what is it about those interactions that you really gain from? You know, I I think great investors know when
1: they can invite and know when not to, right? And a lot of them, I mean, look, the great ones knowing that they're investing in us, the team. So, they're not kind of come in and like, tell us what to do. They they suggest things. They'll, they'll do pattern matching, like, hey, I've seen this work at companies like that. But they also kind of help us get to some of those conclusions. Now, of course, it's incumbent on the, the entrepreneurs to listen. Sometimes we've listened, we've gone back, and we say, no, here's why we don't think that's right for our business, even though it worked for this other company that, that, that you may have seen. So, I think, that's a big piece. The other big piece is just introductions and access. I mean, our investors work for us and they provide a ton of intros and a ton of value and a ton of feedback. And it, honestly, it makes our jobs easier. You know, any any leg up you get, I mean, it's hard to start
0: companies. Any advantage you get, take it. And good investors give you advantages. But talk to me, you're based in, in Raleigh, uh, not a traditional tech hub, uh, to, to put it mildly. Uh, so, yeah. what were the challenges of raising? money from top-tier investors, as you did, from a non-tech hub. How did you overcome them? A lot of people around here like
1: just assume that they just complain about there not being any money here, right? So, of course, you have to get out of the office and travel a lot. So, I, I travel a ton and, and get out of the office. And even then, we got turned down a lot. I mean, the, the, key, is, the key to overcoming is executing really, really well. And, and
0: for us, I, I think through a willingness was, to travel and get out of your perimeters...
1: I think that's been a big thing. And then, you know, we have uh, one of our key, I guess, core values is around making customers happy. And, you know, I guess a lot of companies talk about that, but we really, really do it. And it was actually a small aside, but, you know, you saw, you know, Jeff Bezos' letters making all the rounds on social media is an amazing letter, of course. But he talks about this customer commitment and he did a better job of articulating it than I probably have. But we embody that in our culture. The fact is, when we went to go meet with VCs in other areas, when they started doing diligence on us, and they started speaking with customers, and all of the feedback was very, very positive, that really helped us close, honestly, both of our large rounds of funding. So, I think executing well, really taking care of customers, getting out of the office, these are, to me, the how we've been able to uh, to be successful here
0: mm-hmm. well todd it's been such a pleasure having you on the show as i said to you uh, from seeing your stand at sasta in 2016 uh, i've wanted to have you on the show so thank you so much for joining me today thank you harry appreciate it man such a pleasure to have Todd on the show there. And again, a huge thank you, Tim, for giving up the time state and revealing the incredible trajectory of Pendo. And we look very forward to seeing the exciting future that lies ahead. And if you enjoyed the show today and would like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at Stebbings with two b's. Or you can follow the main man Jason Lemkin on Sasta at Jason LK. We would both love to see you on those respective platforms. But before we leave you today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business. And that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party Review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360 degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with law. Long- long-term contracts, and even has a 15-day trial for all SASTA listeners, simply head over to reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.